0: The series that we're looking at is called Heroes of the Faith. So to start off I thought it would be good just to share growing up who were a couple of my heroes. Please don't judge me. (laughs) The first picture we're going to put up of my hero growing up if we could get the next slide. (laughs) There's a lot of resemblances isn't there? The ultimate warrior. I used to love WWF wrestling. And I I used to love watching The Ultimate Warrior. He would run into the ring and he'd shake the ropes. And his matches were really short. He was just so strong. And he was one of my heroes growing up. Next one, Brian Loudrup. Brian Laudrup played for Rangers. I used to live just outside Glasgow, and a couple of people were shaking their heads. That's okay. I won't look at you again. Uh, <laughs> so he played for Rangers in the 90s. Great player. And when I was out in the football pitch, I used to try and emulate him and try and play like him, uh, and never succeeded. And then the final one is Chad Kroger from Nickelback. I once mentioned in a sermon about my love for Nickelback One person came over and shared that love. I've given a wee thumbs up to her. And uh, I'm delving there again, guys. I'm being brave. So I I met him once outside Glasgow uh, after a gig in the Barrowlands. And I used to love their music and used to play the guitar and try and learn all their songs, which would only take three chords, I think, which, uh, yeah, used to try and master their songs. So every single one of them I wanted to emulate at some point in my younger life. And there was something I wanted to replicate. I wanted to be like them. And a hero does that. A hero does that. And this series, we want to look at God's Word, and we want to stir in us the heroes that we read in here. What they did that we can learn from and stir in ourselves. Something new or to remind us of what following Jesus is really meant to involve. We'll maybe jump on to the next slide, so we're not looking at ultimate warrior while I'm speaking. So Elijah was a prophet in the ninth century BC. And to sum him up, and the accounting kings, he defended the worship of God against the worship of false gods and idols and evil kings. There's a lot of evil kings around that time. And there's this continuing tension of people turning to false gods. And this is the, the first that we hear of him. And if we're to sum him up, he's a man who speaks and acts with real God-given authority. Elijah's obedience and openness to the things of God were there to see throughout God's Word. He was ready and full of faith to follow God's plan. Even if that meant he was to go into the wilderness, even that, if that meant he was to just follow God's plans and directions, go to this place, go to that place. We can read about that in the chapter before, uh, in chapter 17. He was very obedient. We're in chapter 18, verse 16. Uh, this morning, and uh, we're going to read that in a little second. But just to cover what has happened before then, we have Elijah in exile and wilderness, and, th- and that is ending. God instructs him to return to a place called Samaria and confront a king called Ahab. Uh, he had originally given him the news of a drought, and he's now returning back. And we have an encounter with a man called Obadi- Obadiah. And Obadiah was the chief steward of the royal palace. And he was hiding prophets who were being hunted. So basically, there's a heap of prophets that are being hunted to be killed. Obadiah was hiding them. He was bold, but also he was reaching the point where his boldness was running out. So he was getting afraid that he would be killed. And Elijah's back into the scene, and he's wanting to confront King Ahab. So he reassures Obadiah in verse 15, and we're going to pick up in verse 16. But before we do that, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are, you are here, that you are working, that you are good, that you are here even if we don't feel you here. What a great truth that is, Lord. For those of us who aren't feeling anything, you are in our midst. You are moving. And we pray, come Holy Spirit, not because you're not here, You're always here, but just so we, yeah, just so you can increase what you're doing, Lord. May we have an awareness of you in the room right now as we unpack your word. So we open our hearts now. We make the decision to allow you to speak into our situations. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So 1 Kings 18 and starting at verse 16. There's a few verses in this. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But if Baal has 450 prophets, but Baal has 450 prophets, get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. And let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood and not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull that was given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench round it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. What a picture. What a picture. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Amen. That was a few verses this morning. Thank you for bearing with me. So we mentioned, uh, as I mentioned, the worship of idols was flooding these people, these these people's lives. And it was a real battle because these people were being distracted and worshipped many statues and many different idols. They went astray eh, from God's love. And there was a lot of attempts to pull people away from the true and living God, a lot of things that are masking themselves as attractive but turning out eh, to be the wrong things. In the midst of this tension, Elijah, full of God's mission and purpose and spirit, stood strong. One man, one and God makes the majority. We see a showdown. We see this one man versus 450 prophets. It reminds me of the the movie 300 when there's, you know, the 300 men against the tens of thousands of armies or the Matrix, the movie The Matrix when Neo's in the middle and there's all these agents who have replicated. Just this picture of one person being surrounded. Just imagine that. There's me, and then it's 450. A showdown. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been in situations in your life where it's felt, I'm the only one in this. It feels like I'm, a, I'm surrounded. It feels I've got nowhere to turn. What on earth am I going to do? How does that make you feel? How do you think, speak, act, sleep? Sometimes it's hard to stand as the one when it's only your voice, when it's only our decision, when it's only our call, when it feels like everything else is against us. Standing as the one is difficult, but we are not alone this morning. We are not alone. With God, we are on the majority. We have the Lord of the cosmos, the Creator, on our side. He is with us and He is in us. And God's word goes at length throughout in detail and instances of this dynamic of the majority and the minority. We see it with Moses against Pharaoh. We see it with Noah, who was given a word by God to build an ark. We see it with David and Goliath. David, a small young man standing alone against a giant, the head of an army. We see it with Jesus. We see it with Gideon. There is an encounter, a holy discontent, And then a response which often puts us in a place of seeming vulnerability, humanness, smallness. What on earth am I doing? Terry Virgo puts it like this. God is looking for that one faithful lightning rod to work through. I love that. I love that line. Love that picture. A vessel to display His greatness. Someone faithful, someone who knows Him well loves him with all his heart. He wants to do the same with us this morning. He really does. He really does. I'm not just saying that. He really does. He wants us to be that lightning rod. I wonder, I just wonder where he would truly lead us if we were truly willing. What, what would, how would our lives differ? And he does this in and through the hero, Elijah this amazing demonstration of God's power. There's three things I want to look at this morning. I want to look at whose side we're leaning on. I want to look at space, not space up there, but like space. I want to look at space. Are we giving God space? And then finally, I want to look at God's greatness, reminding ourselves of actually how big God really is. So firstly, whose side are we leaning on? That reminds me of an old song at Sunday school. I used to sing, "Whose side are you leaning on?" Does anyone remember it? I used to go, "Eileen, Eileen, Eileen." Yeah, okay, I'll move on. The funny thing about that song was, though, though, our lollipop lady was called Eileen. So me and my sister, you go, "Eileen, Eileen, the lollipop lady," and my dad would be like, "Be quiet." Anyway, he didn't say that. I'm just joking. Yeah, I remember that song. Whose side are we leaning on? We see Elijah here following uh, King Ahab had gathered all the prophets. Uh, He's addressing the crowd with these words in verse 21. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. We have here a people of indecision. We would assume that some of these people would have followed God, would have had their attention diverted, or others would have been solely fixated on these idols. We read in in commentaries, so people that have studied this passage, uh, they suggest that they dipped between the two. Best of both worlds, or what I like to call it, they were kind of humming and hawing between the two. Rick Warren says this, when you can't make up your mind, you stagger through life. The Bible says in James 1 that when we remain double-minded, we become unstable in everything we do. The Greek word for unstable literally means stagger like a drunk. I don't want my walk with God to reflect that. Indecision becomes decision with time. We develop into this middle kind of missing out, in between kind of stage. How can we avoid it? How can we avoid it? I think it's around our trust and dependence and reliance on God to trust God as our guide, and to trust ourselves less. We don't know best. Psalm 23, verse 3, that famous psalm says, he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. We handle the stress of decision-making by letting God guide us. A number of years ago, a story surfaced about a lady called Raelia Abelkhanova, and every time she flies abroad, She faces hours of interrogation by immigration officials. When she applies for a job, she is met with suspicion. She was a university professor, and she'd never been in trouble with the law. Her problem was that she has no nationality. She is stateless. And she says this, I cannot put down roots, so it's like tumbleweed which rolls and rolls without stopping. I want to stop and put down roots, but I can't. Now, Raelia is one of hundreds of thousands of people who fell through the cracks when the Soviet Union broke up in 1991. She failed to obtain citizenship, and years on, she still lives in limbo. She is what UN experts call a legal ghost. And there's 600,000 people in Europe like that. How many of us can... Resonate with that 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 quote, like tumbleweed that rolls without stopping. I want to put down roots, but I can't. Maybe some of us here this morning commit to God's side until something comes along that grabs our attention or diverts us and makes us switch across to a self-sufficient life, a sorted life. Or when life is great, our relationship with God plummets a bit, and when life gets tough, it's it's on the increase. You know, God doesn't want sorted lives in a worldly sense. He just wants surrendered lives. He just wants surrendered lives. And I believe that that God is shouting like Elijah did to some of us this morning, how long will you waver? How long will you waver? Lean on me. Trust in me. Walk with me. Speak with me. Let me in. I can guide you. I love you. And there's a, a couple of things on switching sides and wavering that I just want to unpack. Firstly, living under mixed messages is confusing and dangerous. I, I, I'm quite a sport fan. I, li- I like all sports. I'm not particularly good at any of them. Jack of all trades, master of none. But uh, there's one thing that annoys me about football matches, and it's testimonial games. It's testimonial games. So, testimonial games happen when maybe a player's been playing for the same team for 10 years and uh, they put on a big match. And they just celebrate this, this player and say thank you to them. But one thing that annoys me is when players play a, a half on each side. So they play with, for different teams. I'm like, how can you do that? I just don't get it. So, you know, play for one side. And they have different strategies. They play a different way, different tactics. And uh, how often do we live like that? That perhaps it looks good, it benefits me, it's quick for me. And we switch to the other side. We put the other football strip on. And we forget actually who we are called to be and who God's called us to be. Who we're living for. Who provides for us. To remember what God has done through His Son, Jesus, for us. Remember who we are. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, it says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are a people of light this morning. Not flickering or switching on and off, but light. We are to be a people of light. And the people that Elijah was speaking to, they forgot. They got attracted to false idols, quick fixes, instant fixes, what the latest thing was, and they forgot their first love. They forgot their first love. How often in the Old Testament do we read of God's people forgetting their first love? So let's make sure we grow deep roots when times of temptation come, when the enemy comes to steal and destroy, that we may be pulled but not taken across to the other side. The picture I had was of a a Stretch Armstrong toy. Do you remember Stretch Armstrong? And just that thing of actually you know what? I am the Lord's, my feet are planted, and you can try and stretch me any way you want, but I'm not moving. I'm not moving. I wonder how many of us are feeling just really stretched right now, and actually our legs are wavering a bit. We would love to, to pray with you this morning. We'd love to pray with you. And when we waver, we risk not stepping out into what God has for us. We have Elijah stepping out in obedience, fulfilling what God has spoken to him about. And we have some of the prophets of Baal switching sides. Imagine, imagine every morning them thinking, "Who today? Who sounds better? Who are we going to? What side are we going to go on? What's the easy option?" We have this verse, wave, we have this phrase, waver. And in in packing the original trans, translation, the verb to waver is the same as to limp. It's the same as to limp. And Elijah used this intentionally. Their desire to pick and choose to get the best of both worlds had actually crippled them. It's actually crippling them. It's tiring. They're limping along. The lethargy of skipping between the two sides means that all that God has planned, all that He wants to do is sitting dormant. It's gathering dust. I don't want to take that risk by going for the quick fix, going for the easy option. And I don't want that for any of us either. Where are we leaning this morning? Whose side are we leaning on? And then secondly, I want to look at space. Give the importance of space. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, one of my favorite places to go when I was younger, or still is, is Brora. And uh, my grandmother used to live there and Mary and the boys and I, we often go up there an odd Saturday afternoon to the beach there and look for fossils. It's really good to look for dinosaur uh, fossils. And there's uh, a lovely beach, amazing ice cream. If you've not tried Capaldi's ice cream, you need to go and try Capaldi's ice cream. But uh, growing up and going there on holiday, one of my favorite memories was my granny's fire, her coal fire. And I I just loved the fire. I would sit as a little boy just staring at this fire. uh, I'd watch it be lit up. I'd watch my dad clean it in the morning. I was just fascinated by it. And I'd throw my sister's magazines in it and, and wind her up. But also, <laughs> I really did, yeah. My gran used to keep, my gran used, was on a lot of medicine and a lot of tablets. She used to keep the medicine bottles. And the thing with the medicine bottles, a certain, I don't know what, I think it was the brownie ones, but when you put them in the fire, the flames would all of a sudden all turn blue so she, she used to gather them all for me. So I'd have like 30 medicine bottles and I'd be, yes, medicine bottle a night and watch the flames turn blue. That was maybe a lot to do with the fascinate, fascination around it. But I would just be so tempted to get like the poker and all the little tools she had and just try and play with the fire. I was just fascinated by it. And time and time again, she would say, no, just give it space. And then you'll see the flames come. You'll see it, give it space to set a light. And it genuinely infuriated me because all I wanted to do was get in there and just try and stoke the fire a bit. I wanted to be in charge of it. And that little picture is much the same of God in our lives. He needs space. Like fire, He needs breathing room. And we, we must stop stifling Him. We must stop trying to take charge. Elijah's belief that before 450 prophets on Mount Carmel, he was in the majority with God meant that he was assured and expectant, and he was giving God space. He was giving God space. He was giving them license to move in that situation. It's over to you, Lord. I love that picture. I love that dependency on God. It's over to you, God, when the odds are stacked against me. Okay, Lord, here we are here we are. Because when we give God space, things happen. We see more of the kingdom break through. And He needs space to move in our lives. It starts with us. Surrender. He does a work in us to then work through us. I want to just look, have a moment just to look inward for a little minute. Uh, Joyce Mayer brilliantly speaks about space for God to move and allowing God into every room of our heart so i wonder if we could close our eyes for a second i'm going to invite a uh, god's spirit to come lord, lord we pray come holy spirit we open our hearts to you we open our, our lives to you afresh our whole lives and i just want to go through these different rooms and as i do maybe you could just say to yourself lord i let you into this room lord i let you into this room so, the first room is the study, and this is your mind, your thoughts. You can choose what you think about, and, and not to let the enemy dominate, but just how you think. What your first thought is, perhaps, when, when tough times come, or where your, your mind wanders. Lord, we surrender that to you. The next room is the dining room, and this is our desires. This is wanting what God wants. We surrender that room to you, Lord. We want to desire what you desire, Lord, and where our desires are earthly, we want to want to say sorry for that, Lord. Then we have the living room. So this is your friends, your family, what you talk about what you do with them, how you bless them. Lord, we surrender the living room to you, the day-to-day, who we interact with. Then we have the workroom, which is your legacy, how you bear fruit. Is it good fruit? What we're like when no one's looking. Lord, we allow you into that. Holy Spirit, we surrender that room to you May the legacy we leave be one that's full of good fruit, Lord. And where maybe we've been harboring and growing fruit that isn't great, we say sorry, Lord. The games room, entertainment, what we do, what we watch, what we listen to, what we read, how we speak, I wonder as we allow the Lord into that room, is anything dominating that isn't great? And for the things that do give us life, Lord, will you increase them? And for the things that don't, Lord, we want to say sorry and we come to you. And we love that you pour grace in. Will you pour grace into every single one of these rooms, Lord? May we be a people who are really alert as to what we watch and what we listen, what we read, how we speak. Because it matters. And then we have the hall or the closet, and this is the hidden And this may be something that we've never spoken of to anybody. But I I want us to ask the Lord, what's in there? What is gripping us? Lord, we surrender that to you. We We invite your spirit into that space. And will you bring healing? Will you bring light? Will you bring hope? Will you remind us? that everything's going to be okay. Amen. Amen. It's, it's fascinating just watch. I could see God's Spirit just moving as we're going through the rooms there. It's wonderful, wonderful. And you can see with all the rooms, God wants space in every single one. He wants to move in them all. So we give God space in our lives. So as well as the inside, God wants space on the outside. It's interesting that the people weren't influenced by Elijah's speech. In verse 20, he shouts to the people, he speaks to the people, and we see that the people said nothing. But when Elijah offers an opportunity to do something, for a showdown, for a face-off, they're there. Right away, they're there. And I think in this passage, what God is wanting to remind us, that a lot of the time, we can speak the speak, but it's about, we can talk the talk, but it's about walking the walk you knew what I meant, guys, you knew what I meant. A lot of the time, it's actions over words. It's less speaking and more doing and more loving. It's praying for folk. John Wimber, one of the founders of the Vineyard, has a, it's a great clip on YouTube when he said, uh, reflecting on his experience of church when he came to know Jesus, he went up to the pastor and he says, when are we going to get to do the stuff? And he's like, what do you mean get to do the stuff? He says, you know, the stuff in the Bible, And the guy says, oh, we don't do this stuff. That was for back then. And he was just like, what? He says, when I worked for the devil, I got to do the stuff. But he says, we cry about it, we read about it, we pray about it, we sing about it. When are we going to go to do the stuff? Our actions over our words. Our words are important, but opportunities for people to see, to feel and encounter God rather than hear all the time are so important to God. Kingdom living is often caught and not taught. It's often how we are out with, how we live out with. Go where God is moving. Give him space to do what he wants. Give him opportunities to enter into conversations, into our meetings, into our pints at the pub with friends, into our work meetings, into our shopping queues, into the school runs. We pray in the busy for space, for opportunities to share, for opportunities to take a risk to trust in the presence and the power of God. And for some of us this morning, I, I, I wrote down uh, just this morning as I was really looking, for some of us, we are on the cusp of that. And actually fear and familiarity is really holding us back. And we would love to pray with you if that's the case. It's that thing of what will people think? And actually familiarity, we're stuck in the grip of familiarity. We're sailing through each week again and again and again. The weeks are going by and we're going, oh, there we go, it's Saturday morning again, where did the week go? And actually God's wanting to just bring some exciting stuff and actually he's asking us, will you give me space in your heart and then space in the day-to-day. So in the internal workings of our hearts and, the ma- and our minds and out here, let's give God space to do something. Elijah did, he believed, he trusted, he was faith-filled because he worships a God who protects him, who uses him and wants the best for him. And then finally, we're to glow in the light of God's greatness. The reason I chose the word glow is because looking at chapter 17 and the chapter before, we see a widow who trusted in Elijah, who gave her last food to Elijah. And he quotes what God has said, and she believes him, and there was something about him. There's something about him. God is looking for that one faithful lightning rod to work through, Elijah was, you can just imagine him, he was positively glowing with the presence of God. And you know, as I I read that passage and as I looked at Elijah and I see him as a, a real hero, I think sometimes we forget. I think sometimes we forget what we carry. We forget what people out in this city and in this nation don't have that we have. We forget God, we forget His power, we forget forget His great presence with us through His Spirit. So just as I, I close, a couple of things on Elijah's actions. There's maybe an opportunity to reignite an impossible dream. Just that word impossible, what's impossible right now? There's a book I was reading called Chase the Lion by a pastor called Mark Batterson. And in, uh, he speaks about another book, and excuse my French, called L'Empire de l'air. That's quite good, isn't it? By Louis Pierre Mullard, And he was a French farmer, he was a poet, and he was a student of flight. And uh, he was a prophet, this is in the book, a prophet crying in the wilderness, exhorting the world to repent of its unbelief in the possibility of human flight. Let me read that line again because I had to read it about 10 times. A prophet crying in the wilderness, exhorting the world to repent of his unbelief in the possibility of human flight. So human flight at that time was an absolute pipe dream for everyone who spoke about it. But for Louis Pierre, he rejected that. And this book fell into the hands of a man called Wilbur Wright. He had received it because he wrote a letter to the Smithsonian Institute asking for everything on human flight. He was fascinated by it, and this set in motion a dream, a moment. He had read this, all that he received to his bedbound brother about his fascination, and his brother's illness led them to together being, together being fascinated about human flight, led them to write in that letter to the Smithsonian Institute, led them to receive that book, read that line, and something came to life inside of them the fire was stoked, the dream was ignited. And they are, of course, known as the Wright brothers who are credited for building, inventing, pioneering, and flying the world's first aircraft. What impossibility do we need to repent of because we've forgotten of God's power and greatness? What have we written off? Where have we uttered, there's no changing that? Or that situation, that'll always be the same. Or God's never going to speak into the life of my family. I've tried, it's been years. What have we marked as impossible? What dream has God deposited in our hearts for our lives that fear is holding back from? And then just as a final question look, what step can we take to make it happen, to set it in motion again? I want to remind us the story isn't finished. There is more, and we are called to glow, to shine, to be set apart. And I feel the Lord saying to us as a church not to get comfy, not to get settled. And the single biggest risk to us is that uh, we made it to Inverness to plant a church two and a bit years ago, and we're seeing people uh, come and explore Jesus. We have nice services. We're doing great stuff in the city We're having great times worshiping together, but as I've said before, this really isn't it. I wonder if you've ever felt that sitting in your office or in church. Maybe you know you've settled or got comfy. There's a longing for more, a stirring in your heart. I want to urge us not to be a people that settle. It's almost like uh, the alpha course that we're going to be starting. We're going to show a clip in just two minutes. But the Alpha Courses strap line is: is there more to life than this? And I feel the Lord saying, you know, there's a few of us that know and love Jesus that need to just ask that question and remind ourselves: there's more to life than this. God's here this morning. And when we're with God, we are, on a, we are in the majority. We are in the majority. The impossible made possible. Hebrews 13:5 the amplified version says, put thoughts about your own weaknesses behind you and focus instead on the awesome ability of God. Start saying to yourself, hallelujah, God is with me. He will not in any way fail me, nor give me up, nor leave me without support. He will not. He will not. He will not in any degree leave me helpless, nor forsake, nor let me down. Why don't we stand?